And there's a James Cameron thing, which where he says, show the hole, which would be a weird phrase to say if he was in the adult entertainment industry. <laughs> but luckily he makes big budget action movies. And what he's saying is um, it's okay to have a plot hole, but have the characters talk about it. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we'll be speaking to an incredible screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing with us what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week, we're joined by the brilliant Joe Cornish, delving into the first draft of his 2011 sci-fi comedy, Attack the Block. Joe was a popular comedian, writer, and broadcaster prior to making this debut feature about an alien invasion on a South London council estate. Starring a then-unknown John Boyega, Attack the Block was a critical smash full of gorilla-like creatures from outer space, teen heroes, breathless set pieces, and searing social commentary. Since then, he's worked on Marvel's Ant-Man and The Adventures of Tintin with a certain Steven Spielberg. He also wrote and directed last year's excellent The Kid Who Would Be King. Here's what Joe had to say about the real-life mugging that inspired Attack the Block, the importance of research to tell an authentic story, and his memories of trips to buy weed with his good friend Louis Theroux. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, and produced by Kimmel Demack. Over to Joe. Joe Cornish, hey. Um, so this is kind of crazy timing. We arranged this podcast a few weeks ago, in which time there's been this incredible uprising against racism across the world. John Boyega gave an incredible speech at a London rally, sparking lots of celebration of his work as an actor. As a result, over the last couple of weeks, there's been this renewed celebration of Attack the Block. I've seen um, Lin-Manuel Miranda has been tweeting about it, David F. Sandberg, loads of film websites have run pieces kind of revisiting the movie. I know that you are not a massive social media person, but have you kind of been watching this unfold and what, what's the emotion been seeing kind of this this film be celebrated all over again? Mixed feelings, really. Um, you know, it, the, the, the movie's nearly 10 years old now mm. and it's trying to address issues that were fairly ingrained then, you know, and have certainly stuck around. So, um, you know, it, and, and it's tough as well. You know, obviously it's a, it's a piece of kind of escapist action adventure cinema that, that, that cinema, he says, film, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, uh, that, that, that hopefully, you know, hopefully has a, a, a bit of socio-political subtext to it. And, and you know, at the time when it came out, it put a lot of people's backs up because it has a very unusual protagonist and sort of um, arc to the protagonist. Uh, But the short answer to your question is that it's, you know, it's wonderful that people are revisiting the film. Um, It's, it's terrific that, you know, some of the, some of the things it's trying to examine are, are, are coming through to people who watch it because when you make something you're never quite sure whether you're going to successfully communicate what you want to communicate so that's very rewarding that people are you know reading it and getting the getting the intent the, the things that we intended from it but but sure. you know most of all it's a moment for john and it's a moment for um for for hopefully some social change and um you know to be a tiny a tiny little part of you know, something that I hope is much, much bigger is uh, is exciting. I mean, it, it's interesting over the last sort of almost 10 years, as you say, the film has been celebrated for its representation and for the way it humanised a type of person who at the time was being demonised on the front pages of tabloids every day. Um, so 
it sounds from what you were saying there that that was something you like consciously wanted to achieve. It's very much in the tradition of, you know, p- particularly John Carpenter's movie Assault on Precinct 13 mm. that has this fantastic arc where there's a, a character who's actually a murderer uh, who's being transported from prison to prison that ends up as part of the siege and working alongside the the police officer protagonist. So that has, a at the time, a very sort of progressive and interesting um, um, trajectory with its two lead characters. So that was something um, we were trying to reflect. Also, um, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead has interesting, you know, racial and social subtext to it. We were kind of writing it in that tradition. Um, and yeah, it really excited me. At, at the time, I was really into a movie, a Korean movie called Attack the Gas Station. Yeah. That's about this gang that uh, take a gas station hostage. They're sort of, uh, they're baddies at the beginning. Um, and they take the gas station hostage and they sort of end up running it <laughs> and just serving people. And um, it's really funny and kind of subversive. And it has this amazing opening where you realize there's a moment in it where you realize that these are your protagonists. Yeah. You're like, oh shit, like no one else is going to walk into this scenario. Like it's not going to have a save the cat moment. <laughs> these are my protagonists. And at the time I found that, and I still do find that really exciting because it, it, it immediately puts you in a position where you have to try and invest, you know, or, or, mm. or it's a very brave thing to do with the narrative because you're either going to lose your audience or you're going to find a tone and a through line that challenges their preconceptions. Um, so that was the point with Attack the Block was to sort of start with the stereotype mm. and really show these kids as a, 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 as, as a kind of masked gang and even with their costuming to hide their faces, make them silhouettes, to just make them sort of almost the tabloid cliche at the beginning and then over the next 85 minutes to try and unravel that and show you how uh, those kids, because they're children basically, have ended up in a situation where they would feel that uh, thing they do at the beginning is a, is a reasonable thing to do. And that's interesting because that that journey that the audience takes of realizing that these are these are the protagonists, you do start the film even in this first draft. It starts in much the way that we see on screen. So we're introduced to Sam. She's walking home from the tube. She gets mugged by by these kids who at first are intimidating, but then you start to pepper in these really fun kind of like humanizing lines of dialogue and things like that. I mean, I love Biggs kind of talking on the phone to his mom, assuring her that, yes, mom, I had pizza for dinner, I've eaten and all that kind of thing. So can you tell me a little bit about the process of like, yeah, sort of going on that journey with these characters and starting to endear them to the audience and to challenge the audience to kind of realize that these aren't the people who you thought they were at the beginning of the film? Well, we did a huge amount of research for the film. And I did all that research before I wrote the screenplay. And and, and we went to youth groups and youth clubs. We tried to find kids who were as close to the characters we were writing about. Mm. And we talked them through the narrative and recorded everything they said. And then I went home and, and I'm, for listeners, I'm holding up a big A4 binder. Wow. Wow. <laughs> in which, and, and then I came home and I transcribed every single interview. Yeah. Um, 
my, myself so that I could really try and get get into the 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 argot. Um, and then we went back and did it again and again. We, we were basically trying to find the characters in the in the real world. Mm. So we tried to find Biggs and we tried to find Pest. And particularly we tried to find Moses and we did find this one really wonderful kid who'd, you know, managed to get himself excluded and in quite a bit of trouble. And we got to know him pretty well and really interviewed him a bunch of times and tried to really dig into his life and his past and um, and again transcribed all of that and then uh, that's a, so, so a lot of the dialogue comes out of those interviews I did so these in the folder you can see here there's um, pink post-its uh, so that's just some weird thing. I don't even know what that is. I'm not even going to say. <laughs> that is something a kid called Jamie said in a youth club in the Walworth Road on the 13th of the 11th, 2007. Uh, uh, yeah, so there's a line here. A kid called Isaac said, uh, I'd say, see you later. I'd let everyone else walk out and I'd stay in my house and play pro. <laughs> so that, that eventually became FIFA. Yeah. In fact, in the first draft, it, it is still pro. And uh, yeah, I was interested in how EA managed to lobby you to change it to FIFA in the final film. That would have been the cast. That would have been John and, um, and, and Simon and Alex and all the actors. Because we, again, when we came to sh rehearsing before we shot, we spent a week or two just going through the script line by line. Uh, we would have a day on each character. So one day mm. would be John's day. Uh, another day would be another actor's day. And we would all just talk through every single line of theirs, why their character was saying it. And if they wanted to change it, they could, you know. Um, yeah. So so we would have had a conversation about whether it would be pro or FIFA. Mm. And as a group, they probably they voted for for FIFA <laughs> instead. So, so in answer to your question, all 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 that, all that characterful stuff came from the actors and came from research. But it also came from you know that was the that was why I was writing the film. Mm. the The point of writing the film was to take a kid who mugged a nurse and try and understand what not excuse it, but understand why a kid would find themselves in that position. Mm. And that came and from real life, from an experience you had, right? It did, yeah. It 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 came from being mugged myself. But I also, you know, I've I, I grew up in Stockwell, and um, you know, I've I've lived here since since December the twentieth, nineteen sixty eight. So I've lived wow. through, you know, the first movie I, I ever saw at the cinema was when the Brixton Academy was a was a was a cinema rather than a <laughs> uh, a a concert venue. You know, I used to buy all my toys at Bon Marche in Brixton. Mm. I remember, um, you know, seeing Superman 2 when the first riots happened. It might have been the second riots. Um, so, you know, I'm I, I, I'm very much a sort of middle-class kid, but <laughs> it's hard not to um, have some awareness of social disparities when you, you know, grow up in, in, in this area. Um, mm. So, no, the point of the film was to was to try and uh, address, you know, the demonization and the sort of lack of, um, you know, empathy mm. that was going on at the time when it came to, um, you know, what was popularly known as hoodies. Yeah, because this would have been, 
I mean, the uh, draft that you sent over, I think that's dated March 2008. And I mean, I haven't got my timelines all figured out, but this would have been like right around the kind of ASBO panic and and all that kind of thing, right? Can you explain a little bit about the cultural climate and, and, and what, what an ASBO is and what, what is meant by a hoodie? Well, it's just a very tabloidy approach to the whole thing. You know, um, I don't think it's changed enormously. Mm. You know, at the moment, people seem to care more about the statue than they do about the um, socio-economic conditions of a massive yeah. slice of the of the populace. There's just a tendency to, um, you know, there's just a lot of racism around. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and the point is genre cinema is actually really good at addressing stuff like this and really good at taking themes like this and um and so the idea was to do it in a f- the other thing i was reacting to was um that genre of cinema at the time was often quite bleak and depressing and um you know you weren't necessarily uh i don't know you just sometimes ended up in quite a bleak place when people tried to tell stories set in this milieu especially with British cinema. Um, And so I wanted to do something uplifting and escapist and thrilling and exciting with explosions and chases and aliens and stuff. Yeah. Um, And it's important to, to remember that with that, you know, that, that, that all the time we were sort of trying to do both things. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. There's um, there are differences between this first draft and the film that we all know and love now, but it is like it's it's remarkably similar and um it made me kind of wonder the fact that you had all the story beats and all the characters in place in this first draft are you a big outline kind of guy do you work out what this story is going to be in outline form and then screenplay is just a case of putting those ideas into form so the first thing i do is i make uh, an image book oh wow so that's, that's this cool. is the image book for attack the block dated uh, the tenth month of two thousand and seven. Yeah, and so again, I got my friend to do lots of um, lots of illustrations, and I did a little post pretend poster, and I had an X certificate because I really like the X on it, and and then I just grabbed a bunch of um, images. Wow! So a sort of mood book. I'm showing. So you know, this is an audio podcast, so you're just going to have to imagine this. <laughs> yeah. But it's a mixture of images of werewolves and um, uh, kids, inner city kids, tower blocks, aliens. Uh, you know, all sorts of stuff, and all mixed together to really give the. And this is a kid who was a friend of a friend of mine called Moses. His name's Moses Elliot. Mm. Uh, who from whom the name of the lead character came from. And he was one of the first, he lived on the Haygate estate and he was one of the first people I talked to, to try and get my head around the story. So there's also photos of Moses mm-hmm. on his bike. Oh yeah. <laughs> showing the real Moses, who's absolutely nothing like the Moses in the film. Yeah. But uh, he's a really lovely guy. And he's, that was him showing me around the Haygate estate. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's a couple of Martin Parr photos there. So just to move, and yeah, so then, and then once I've done that, I also had little um, little drawings of the characters because I really, I think it helps to try and f- imagine the characters in your mind's eye mm-hmm. before you write. Um, and there's a bunch of sketches trying to figure out what the alien looked like. Oh, yeah. This is really early on. Um, 
and yeah, then then I write a treatment. Oh, sorry, dropped my phone. So yeah, so here's the step outline. My lever arch file here. So Act One is called We. Act One is called We Killed an Alien. And there's thirty-one paragraphs, little se little scenes in them. Act two is called, but now its friends are trying to kill me. <laughs> uh, and then there's a bunch of scenes, 40, 50, 51, 52, 53, 56. Oh, it's a long act two. And then act three is just called Protect the Block. So it sounds like from an early point, you knew this was going to be, this was going to be a small contained story about one night. Yeah. Well, I love movies like that. Mm. You know, I love Die Hard uh, what else do I love? I love, well, I love Die Hard. Um, <laughs> you know, a, we can just a, end the podcast a, there. Aliens, um, anything, you know, Towering Inferno, Poseidon Adventure, like uh, Assault on Precinct 13, hmm. uh, The Thing, like uh, Alien, a movie where you get to understand the geography of a location before something kicks off. Yeah, yeah. And those movies where they really cleverly in the first act... You, you, you know, nothing's ha nothing's happening, but everything's happening. Yeah, so you're seeing yeah. what you think are low key little human moments between characters, but a bunch of shits being, uh, <laughs> a bunch of playing cards are being popped into your pockets as you watch, <laughs> so that the magician can then produce them in the in the third act. Uh, when you come to do that, do you um, do you find do you figure out what those playing cards are going to be, and then retroactively go back and place them in at the beginning? Yeah, that's that's the yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, I guess that's something I've learned from watching movies. And also Edgar does that really brilliantly in, in, in all his movies. Um, it's just the concept of setup and payoff is the simplest way to think about it. Mm. But another, the, one of the good ways of articulating it that Simon Pegg once said to me was, oh God, I'm not going to be able to remember it now. Um, yeah, thesis, synth thesis antithesis synthesis yeah so you set up a premise you then explore the opposite of that premise and you arrive at somewhere that's the that's the synthesis that's the sort of um uh um negotiation the result the through the sort of balance between those two opposites yeah so i don't know let's try and figure it out like right now in die hard you start with a divorced couple mm. you start with a retired cop uh who's become sort of alienated from his skill he's put in a situation where those things are pushed to an extreme and then you know in the simplest terms he ends up back with his wife he ends up gaining the confidence that he that, that he lost um so most most really neat movies you can you can figure out how that works you know even so like i was watching coming to america last night and um i mean that's a masterpiece yeah and you can feel the clockwork when you watch a movie like that you know you can you think what's another great movie i was i was watching dave the other day with kevin klein where he's the yeah, yeah, yeah. impersonator who and just the setups are so beautifully uh thoughtful at the mm. beginning and you just feel like you're you just feel like you're in really comfortable hands because you can you you can you can sense the makers know really know what they're doing yeah and yeah. the 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 end is inherent in the beginning in a movie like that joe you were obviously a 
very successful broadcaster and comedian before writing Attack the Block. Was this your first go at making that transition or were there abandoned screenplay ideas along the way? Oh, there were there were definitely abandoned screenplay ideas. Um, yeah, no, loads of, loads of, I mean, I've been tr- trying to write films since I was about thir- 12 or 13. I've got sort of half finished screenplays from when I was 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and I went to film school, you know, that was what I really wanted to do. And at, when Adam and I were at school, uh, as um, recorded in his fantastic book, Ramble Book, he talks about all the, um, all the films and plays that we did when we were at school. Uh, so yeah, so, and, and I was working as a runner in a in a film production company when, uh, and th- then I used to make videos with Adam on the weekends, and and then Adam got this opportunity to make a TV show, so and invited me to help him out. So so yeah, I was really trying to be in the film, trying to be in the film industry and make films when TV op- TV comedy opportunities came up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so. So I have I have been trying for a, for a long time, and I was sort of thirty nine, forty when I made Attack the Block. Yeah. So I took my time, and I would always take solace in directors like um, Ridley Scott, who started late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you landed on the idea for Attack the Block, um, did did everything start to snowball from there, or was there was the process of kind of like firming up? who these characters were going to be and what the story, you know, what, what the story was you were going to tell. Did they come quite quickly or was there a lot of, were there a lot of ideas you explored during this period that you ended up abandoning? Were there characters and different story beats, different endings? Um, I, I think it sort of stayed the same. And in fact, one of the producers always used to say to me how unusual it was for uh, a screenplay to sort of know, know what it was and know what was at the center of its story and sort of stick to it. I didn't have any experience to compare it with, so I was just always flattered that he said that. Uh, there was It was always said over one night, the parameters were always the same, but there were little detours and different ways of doing things. Um, again, I've got the notes. I've got some of the notes here from film four. You know, one of the processes of writing a screenplay is to get notes and it can yeah. be torture for some writers and really difficult. And there's always the the, the, the the pleasure of writing the first draft that's like where you're like a little child skipping around in untrammeled snow <laughs> and then you make footprints in the snow and it's all muddy and then you have to keep going back in the snow and it risks turning into psychological sludge, <laughs> you know, but um, you've really got to, uh, you've got to realize that, that that a successful movie will be seen, hopefully you hope, by millions of people. Yeah. And millions of intelligent, analytical, brainy people. And movies get reviewed and criticized uh by more than any other art form. You won't find a novel with 350 reviews. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? In every language, in every country. So if your movie's successful, it's got to be robust and you've got to get ahead of all those different brains that'll pick at it from all sorts of different angles. And the notes process is part of that process. It's like your first audience sitting down and watching your movie and going, okay, this could have been better. I had a problem with this. This is really worth listening and taking them seriously. So, so here are the notes based uh, from film four on the 18th of the 9th, 2008, uh, the first act is a slow starter. 
The second paragraph is the knife. We feel quite strongly that by having Moses pull the knife on Sam, there may be too much ground for the audience to make up to get onto Moses' side quickly enough. Mm. As the fun with the first alien plays out, we love the way you've set them up as scary, only to then subvert our idea of them. But as soon as a knife is waved in front of Sam, a violent and terrifying world of association is conjured up, which we th- feel it would be difficult for the audience to put to one side. And you know they were they were right. Yeah, but I really stuck to that. Yeah, <laughs> because for because I really wanted it to be I really wanted it to be strong and challenging. Yeah, and to I wanted it to ask a lot of the audience. Mm. Um, but it did it they were absolutely right it did there's you know a portion of the audience that just won't that get off the ride at that point yeah yeah um uh pacing repetition uh so 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 they had me dig into they, they thought i should dig into sam they really they really encouraged me to dig into every single character and think of each character as the protagonist so mm. do a like do two or three days on each character and think about them as the center of every scene and think about what they're doing when they're not on screen mm. because mm. that'll help you uh, that'll help you realize if you're missing any cool nuggets that you can cut away to yeah also whether you're um oh, i forgot what I was going to say uh oh yeah, it'll just help make them more robust and rounded because when you come to make it remember you're giving each actor that part. So that's a whole actor and a whole person and a whole imagination and a life, a real life. You're, you're, you're asking to inhabit this individual. Mm. So they're going to, they're going to see the holes in it at some point, the actor will see the holes in it. So you just have to be that actor as you write for at least two days so that you can hand them the script with confidence and talk about the part with, with confidence yeah. So, so, and 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 here's another way it relates to Die Hard. One of the brilliant things about Die Hard is how it crosscuts all the characters: Argyle in the limo in the basement, you know, the reporter, the FBI guy, the everybody has a really consistent through line, and 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 that happened as a result of Bruce Willis not being available because he was shooting Moonlighting simultaneously, really? and also that that movie, that screenplay went through a lot of different hands and sort of, so a lot of each writer that came on would try and flesh out a subplot that didn't involve Bruce Willis Mm. so that the movie was as meaty as possible. And so that they didn't need that actor. But the result is this incredibly carefully thought through uh, movie where sort of every character has their own film. Yeah, and yeah. that really inspired me as well. Okay, so what's Hi Hats doing at this point? What's the old lady doing? What's Sam doing at that point? So I also drew a map of the of the estate, and as part of my research process, I visited and photographed loads of estates. So I was writing to locations that I'd been to and knew. Yeah, so I was, mm-hmm. when I staged the action, so that's helped me a lot as well. I knew my arena. Yeah, that really comes out in the action scenes, which, I mean, I, I imagine they must be the hardest thing to write in a script, but they're, they're so physical in even, in even in this first draft. Was that the case? Knowing the geography gave you... I love writing action. I find mm. it really uh, a relief. I said, oh, they've stopped talking. Thank God for that. <laughs> Mainly because I, do, I, do, I, I think good cinema isn't dialogue driven. You know, the one thing that cinema does that no other that television doesn't do you know, is action. People mm. stop yakking and start doing stuff. 
And that's that's really what cinema is, isn't it? When you cannot take your eyes off the screen, you can't yeah. pause it and put the kettle on or look at your phone. Like you, you absolutely, and that's when it counts to be in a big theater with a massive screen and amazing sound, and you're alone yet you're with a hundred people or whatever, because mm. you literally, and that, that's for me what's amazing about those amazing James Cameron films or um, Terminator Two or something when, or, or or a great Spielberg movie when an action sequence kicks off, and you're like, okay, it's like tr- transcendental, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. You know when that for, when the dinosaur breaks out of the paddock in Jurassic Park, you just know for the next <laughs> six minutes, you it's an out of body experience, and you yeah. and you 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 don't sense the cutting anymore. It's just sort of uh, there's something really profound and connective about it. And anyway, so I love action is the point, mm. and I loved writing it, and and it really helped to know. Uh, to go around those estates and go, oh, look, there are little bars to block the bikes here. Oh, it'd be cool to have a bike, have to duck under one of those. Uh, look at how those entry systems work. Okay, there could be a little bit of suspense when someone's trying to put the number in. And um, and also I was trying to find, I was trying to make a science fiction film in a place that was usually associated with sort of um, kitchen sink yeah. downbeat. So I was looking for anything visual that would, look like a sci-fi film so the blocks looking like a spaceship and the gangways looking like a spaceship yeah. <laughs> like um you know uh, uh like like uh, an exhaust plume from a moped backlit by a green traffic light that suddenly looked like the smoke from the wizard the, you know the wizard of oz or something yeah 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 so so again like to be able to use that that environment that i'd only really seen for depressing movies to use that for action was was fun so mm. i loved it i love writing the action and to dive in a little bit into the actual first draft so the first noticeable change is this was originally called attack the estate was it changed to attack the block because that's a more translatable phrase for the yeah US? a state I, w- I think we worried that a state might you know like a stately home like <laughs> people think it, thought it might be like uh like howard's howard's end with with uh, aliens Should i would watch good. it yeah <laughs> um yeah I was all, I don't know about like the title. I think the film has sort of gained some traction despite the title. A lot of people think it sounds like some sort of um, detergent advert um, <laughs> in America. Um, but, but again, that's sort of stolen from Attack the Gas Station, that, yeah, that, that yeah. Korean film. And I, I just like the B movie connotations of the word attack. Yeah. yeah. And, and we begin much the same way. Um, it's it's bonfire night we immediately see fireworks the fact that the film takes place on bonfire night kind of narratively holds the whole thing together so you got cover for this alien invasion um but you've also got an excuse to arm a bunch of children with rockets so was it always going to be bonfire night how did you land on that idea well i guess i guess it is a it well it's a weird time of year in britain isn't it Mm. uh bonfire night i think across europe it is because uh it's sort of half this sort of fun uh, public holiday and half terrifying, <laughs> particularly in South London. <laughs> because, um, and there was even a time when there were no real laws about the sale of those things, right? Or well, yeah, certainly yeah. nobody really paid attention to them. You'd go down to a shop called Jack's that used to be opposite Stockwell Tube and there'd just be a massive glass case full of uh ostensibly uh py- py- you know pyro weaponry <laughs> that kids could just buy um 
And I have to admit that I played with fireworks as a kid. I went to a park and this do not try this at home, but you know, lit some rockets and held them in my hand and threw them. Did you do that? <laughs> I didn't know. I, I, I was always scared of it. <laughs> really? Yeah. We obviously didn't have your bravery. Well, I do foolhardiness. Um <laughs> but but yeah, but so 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 I thought it was an yeah, an interesting night to set it on. And basically it's dr- dramatically convenient because you can have any any stuff go on and uh, people think it's fireworks. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And Just um, good, it's good good cover for all the um all the action. And um we obviously much as in the finished film, uh we see the mugging. Um we then see uh we then see like this see what they assume to be like an asteroid or something crash into what you very specifically put in the uh, in the first draft as as a particular type of car, a silver Volvo or something like that. Was that like a, a particular reference to something? Or um... I don't know where I got that from. I my mum and dad used to have a Volvo, and the character Bruis is you know not a million miles away from me. Uh, <laughs> when I was a young teenager, I would go and score uh, hashish and marijuana in uh flats in estates uh in fact me and louis theroux would go and score he again he writes about this in his book in a in a place called armory way in wandsworth um uh from a particular guy and again this uh yeah i i'm going off on tangent but yeah so that was my mum and dad's car and i would borrow my mum and dad's car and i would go and uh score weed in estates and so it always you know, there'd, there's, there'd always be a residual anxiety when I did that as a teenager that I would be arrested or something would kick off and the sort of um, the two, my secret life would be exposed <laughs> and somehow the car was symbolic of my, you know, uh, my, you know, uh, one life. Yeah. Uh, and if it got smashed up, that would be a good... Um, you know, as the sort of uh, shattering of the two. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't silver though. My, I don't know where I got silver from. Maybe just because it stands out at night. Mm, yeah. But I and think it, if you're going to put a vehicle in a script, I think it's good to be specific. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to put a plane, tell me what sort of plane it is. Because mm. it, it's a, it's an easy way to make a reader feel as if you've done your research. Mm. <laughs> and it's not difficult. You just image search on Google and pick the one you think is right yeah yeah so and it's a nice way to make a a screenplay feel um thought thoughtful and considered and i'm glad you mentioned bruis actually because he's he's in this first draft but he maybe isn't as pronounced in the script and there's a lot of moments that are amazing in the film like him jumping over a shrub to avoid the police and uh his explanation of what ron's weed room is it's a big room full of weed and it's ron's um that's uh that's all stuff that came in later drafts uh so why did you why did you realize you needed more Bruce? Oh, uh, well, that was just part of the exercise, again, which I would recommend for everybody uh, of going, of thinking properly about each character mm-hmm. and thinking about what they're doing and how they would be responding. Um, and, you know, cross-cutting, meaning hopping from place to place with sort of parallel action is a really useful way to keep your scene short and pithy and get in and out of scenes really fast. Um so it was useful on that front. Uh, and also because I just wanted to keep all those balls in the air of Sam, the gang, hi-hats, Bruis, 
make sure they were all uh, attended to at all times, just because it's it's really satisfying. And then the moments where they, you know, I find it satisfying in other movies. Yeah. And then moments where where, where they um, coalesce, like where uh, where Bruce and um, uh, the gang meet, and then and then when Hi Hats gets in the lift and the uh, creature gets in the lift with them. Um, when Moses gets out of the lift, you know, figuring all that stuff out and making sure it made sense because the audience aren't necessarily um, analyzing and keeping track of that as they watch it. But if you get it wrong, they'll notice. Mm. So all that background math you really have to do, not because uh, anyone's going to break your script down, but because it will bump subconsciously um, when people watch it. The mythology of these aliens, who they are, and why they're attacking. That's something you kind of, even in this first draft, like there are hints and there are sort of theories. At one point, um, Moses suggests that the government has sent them in there because black kids aren't killing each other fast enough. Um, how did you decide on like how much backstory to give away and how much, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it struck me as kind of a bit like, a bit like an alien. You don't know why the alien is attacking it's just but you don't need to know yeah i think that's a good point i think you there's always a risk of of too much exposition Mm. um and you really only need to understand why the characters are making the choices they're making for the narrative to work i think um and i watched you know, I watch a lot of movies anyway, but if you watch a lot of horror movies, some of the most satisfying ones have a sort of blankness and an emptiness at the center of their mythology. Um, the shape in Halloween is sort of very vapid in a kind of frightening way. Mm. And uh, I, I think it's sort of reflective of the world that there's a lot of, you know, mystery mystery around us. Um this virus is a case in point where science seems to be floundering to a degree that you really wouldn't expect if you, <laughs> you know, if, if like five years ago, if you told me that um, our ability to, uh, uh, you know, we, we regarded ourselves as a very scientifically sophisticated uh, culture, I think, but the yeah. virus has shown us that we're not and suddenly it's... Um, atomized into a thousand different opinions and approaches and um so it's not bad i think to under explain something as long as it as long as the character's decisions are motivated and and and, and as long as they you know you you again there's a james cameron thing which where he says show the whole mm. um which would be uh a weird phrase to say if he was in the adult entertainment industry, <laughs> but luckily he makes big budget action movies. And what he's saying is um, uh, it's okay to have a plot hole, but have the characters talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm. So if the characters admit it and confess to it and acknowledge it, then you won't feel separated from them. Yeah. Having said that, I did, you know, the thing that Brewis works out is what I worked out for the aliens. The fact that they, uh, are leaving a pheromone trail. And that was something that came up while I was researching for Ant-Man that I was working on concurrently with Edgar. Mm. So I was doing a bunch of reading about ants and ants obviously use pheromone trails. And I thought, oh, that would be useful for um, 
for the other film. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and so I had a whole I had a whole thing worked out. But again, it's useful to work all that stuff out just for yourself and have it in your bucket. Yeah. So you fill a big bucket with research and thoughts and little little. You really build each character before you start writing. Then you can draw on it if you need to. Yeah. Um, and if you come to the end of your script and you haven't need to, you haven't needed to draw on it, then fine, you just leave it alone. Mm. Was there ever a point where you entertained the idea of it being like a, you know, they have to save London or something like that? How did you work out to kind of make it like a more personal thing where these aliens are targeting these kids and just these kids? Uh, well, yeah, that was tough at the beginning, but the pheromone thing was really, really the the, the, the breakthrough there. Mm. Those were the two big obstacles, how to keep it in the block. Like for a long time, I really uh, sort of struggled with, well, why the fuck do they go in the block? Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> like you would just run away from the block. You would not go into the contained space. But then you realize that that's their world and that's where they feel safe and that's the territory they know. I just used, tried to use two or three different sort of pressure points, the safety of Ron's weed room, the fact that it's their terrain and also getting, getting high up, getting off the ground. Mm. Um, But it was always going to be a contained, it was always going to be a low budget film. It was always going to be my little, you know, low budget B movie. Cause I, you know, again, like the first Terminator movie, um, or assault on pre, you know those 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 little movies by big action directors mm. where they're contained, but they're a bit too ambitious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but but they pull off some. You, the, those are really thrilling to me. Uh, yeah, because of their economy and their invention. I suppose it worked out for a storytelling reason. It gives you a, an excuse to kind of center this film entirely around the block. But was there like a bit of a happy accident thematically where? something chimes about the fact that like the sort of social subtext of this film you're dealing with like a group of people who are persecuted and at the time were targeted by police and by press was there something like was there a bit of a happy accident thematically about how you ended up having these aliens targeting these kids at a time when they were being targeted in in real life as well that was all intentional and um i'm not just saying that it was (laughs) like because the idea of otherness and alienness, I mean, that's what's at the root of racism is the sense that somehow that person is essentially different. Mm. And it's just not the case. It's just so not the case. Um, and it's all sort of Im- it, it, it imagined. And um, so the idea was, yeah, that... Um, you know, an alien is the ultimate other, really. Um, so yeah, the idea was to 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 combine the two and um, yeah, to, to make that the center of the of the metaphor, really. Mm. Um, you know, that's again that's something that science fiction, when it works well, is is good at doing in the way that ET is a film about divorce. Yeah, and, you know, an ET is a sort of surrogate father figure, or you know, there's all sorts of. Um, subtexts about about motherhood and, and and femininity in in the alien movies um sometimes if you just choose your symbols in a sort of simple way um 
uh, that stuff can work, I think. But I think I think the thing is to uh, that they're, they're usually really simple. Those movies they're sort of uncomplicated. Mm. Uh, yeah, but no, yeah, that was that was uh, that was intentional. And the ending again, it's much the same, but it's interesting. There's a, there's a small difference in the final film. It's it's Moses's moment. The film ends with the crowd sort of chanting his name, whereas it's a bit more kind of like you know that you just. Yeah, I can't remember exactly how in the, in the first draft, but it it sort of doesn't end quite on that note. It's very didactic in the first draft. Yeah, the, the yeah. first draft ends with Sam going. The first draft ends with that scene between Sam and the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where she chooses not to. Um, here we go, uh, and and in fact, that was the ending I had. I always knew that was how it was going to end. Yeah. Because I wanted to start with them mugging the nurse and ending with the nurse, with them the nurse saying, "Well, no, actually, they saved me." Yeah. yeah. Um, so in the first draft, it ends. Sam points towards Pester Moses, who are being unceremoniously manhandled into police vans. Uh, the policewoman says, "Those boys over there are they the ones that attacked you?" Sam says, "No, I know them. They're friends." Policeman says, are you sure? She says, positive. She watches as the doors are slammed on Pester Moses. The crowd pulsates with cheering, hollering kids who chase after the police vans as they pull away. So so we shot that bit. But in fact, the, the ending of the finished film is a, is a reshoot. We did five or six days of pickups. Mm. And you always, you know, this is something that's been said a million times. They're usually a part of any proper film schedule. You shoot as much as you can within the budget on time. You do a first assemble, then you see what you need to really make it sing. Yeah. And you go and you ask for a little bit more money, or sometimes it's budgeted ahead of time, and you go back with a smaller crew and you do very specific. And sometimes it can be insert shots because if you've got a full crew and cast together, you don't spend your time doing shots of tin cans and door handles. Mm. Yeah. You shoot the actors and then the actors go away and you come back and for a week you do shots of tin cans and door handles. Yeah. But you can also bring back one or two actors and enclosed location and shoot little little flourishes, little curlicues moments that you now know will really sing because you've seen the thing assembled. So. So John's performance was so good and Moses' through line was working so well yeah. that it was clear the movie needed to end on him, not Sam. Yeah. So I figured out that, that I, and again, it's about thinking about, well, what's, what if I was writing a film for every character at every point? And I thought, well, what's going on between, what's happening in that police van with Pest and Moses? And we'd already shot the crowds chanting, so it wasn't it wasn't a great leap of imagination to go. Oh, okay, and then the enigmatic smile is a is a is a <laughs> classic <laughs> a classic movie ending. You know, yeah. um, uh, you know uh, the best the best one being the ending of the four hundred blows. That's not yeah. an enigmatic smile, but that incredible uh, freeze frame at the end of the four hundred blows. But just just to have, uh, uh, particularly because Moses doesn't. Actually, he does smile at the beginning of the movie when he's um, when they're walking along, going through mm. uh, Sam's purse. But to have that little smile from him at the end was just, uh, yeah, it just seemed to be the right ending, a better, a better ending. Yeah, yeah. And we shot we shot that smile a million times, <laughs> a thousand different versions of his smiling. Yeah. Was it as fun to write, Joe, as as it is to watch? 
Did you enjoy the writing process? It's not fun for me to watch. <laughs> uh, Why? I don't, well, your own films never are, are they? Because mm. there's just this swarm of bees in your head when you watch them, which is all the things that you could have got and should have got and could have got better. And uh, was it uh, was it fun to write? Um, well, you know, writing's never fun, is it? Is it? Like, <laughs> it's like it's never fun. Is it fun? It's fun when you're sort of in it, isn't it? Yeah. When you forget about the outside world and you're really absorbed in it and and you forget that you're typing and you're just imagining it and you're like transcribing what you're seeing in your head, that's incredibly fun. Mm. But it's hard work to get there, isn't it? Like the yeah. process of getting from watching the telly or eating <laughs> to being at your desk <laughs> or or or, talk, or chatting to people or just something that's easier yeah to then getting into that moment of just being completely absorbed in it that's the tough bit yeah but uh, but no it was fun to write because i think because i'd done all the research so i had all the material and and, and whenever i got stuck i could go back to that lever arch file Mm. Or go back to one of my character sketches. I, you know, I think I was so. Uh, it was so important to me because it was my first film, and I'd left it so late, and I'd always wanted to do it mm. that I really, you know, I really killed myself. I didn't kill myself, but I really did my homework. Mm. I really did a shitload of work before I even started writing mm. um, because I was so. Um, it was so important to me. Uh, and also slightly because of the subject I'd chosen, I think. Yeah. Um, I th authenticity was important. Yeah, authenticity was was very important. You know, and and um, some people I'm sure think it's a ridiculous film, <laughs> um, but you know, luckily enough, it worked for enough people to uh, to I think um, you know uh, indicate that it was worth doing all that yeah. research. Did you take away any lessons from writing it? That you've that have helped you with your work since. Uh, <laughs> have I taken away any lessons? Yeah, well, it would, or did it underline what you suspected that if you do your homework and you put the research in, it makes the writing process so much easier? Uh yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, just so so many really. Um, and you know, I was very lucky because Edgar. You know, Edgar and I had been working on Ant-Man since, you know, well, for a long time, you know, since the first Iron Man movie, really. Wow. Since before then, since before Marvel was Marvel, when all the rights were owned by a company called Artisan. So I've been lucky enough to work alongside Edgar. And he's a very, uh, he's just very confident. Mm. And I used to get really stuck and overanalyze and sort of think myself into terrible quandaries. <laughs> and he's just very, very can do. So he was a big influence on me. So he he just helped me do a bunch of learning about how to write before I even started on on this. Yeah. Um so that's that's the lesson. Be friends with Edgar. <laughs> Is that practical for people? I'll try. I'll give it my best. Um, and uh, speaking of um, like work going forward and things you've done since, um, I know at the minute you're working on Snow Crash. Is that right? How's that kind of coming along? I know that's been a project you've been sort of trying to get off the ground for a long time. 
Well, Snow, Snow Crash is actually uh, being written by a writer called Michael Bacall, who wrote um, 21 Jump Street and Scott Pilgrim, who's very brilliant. And that's being written as a series for HBO Max. Um, so that's something at the moment I'm executive producing and, uh, you know, would direct if it if it if it gets going. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's a long I wrote that as a screenplay immediately after Attack the Block for Kennedy Marshall. Um, but Paramount decided to make Ghost in the Shell instead. Well, yeah. <laughs> we all know how that. Yeah, went. but I've yeah. I've got a bunch I've got a bunch of other stuff going. Something for Netflix, something for Warner Brothers, um, a sort of horror movie thing. I've always got a bunch of stuff happening, but mm. it's frustrating at the moment, isn't it? Because yeah. well, actually, it's great yeah. for writers. It's a fantastic yeah. time to write, and I, I I've I've been very productive actually over the last couple of months. Um, Especially when it's sunny, so you can write outside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but very frustrating for the rest of the industry, mm. for mm. all industry, for everybody. In moments like this, when people are returning to attack the block, and there's, we're seeing in real life that the themes that you kind of grapple with in that film they're still really relevant today. Is there ever the temptation to return to that world? Has there ever been talk of an attack the block too, or is it just something you feel like you're done with? You told that story. Uh, no, we've got we've got ideas, and um, yeah, I met with John uh, a couple of months ago to talk about it. Wow. Um, so yeah, so no, we've always had ideas since after the first one, but obviously, you know, we've both been busy doing 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 different things. But no, I think it would be, um, and, and and in a way, weirdly, kind of the longer you leave it, the more interesting it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's all I'll say. You've been listening to Script Apart with me, Al Horner, produced by Camel Demek, with music by Stefan Bidley Taylor. Get in touch. We're at Script Apart on Twitter and Instagram. You can also email us, the Script Apart Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>